We have just sung a setting of Psalm 34, and that will be our text this morning. But before we read from Psalm 34, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel chapter 21, you can find that in your pew Bibles on page 288. And we're reading this section of scripture from 1 Samuel in order to give some of the context the historical narrative surrounding uh, the writing of Psalm 34. And so we'll read the entirety of 1 Samuel chapter 21. This is the word of our God. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from woman. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, and there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, His name was Duag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like it, give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart. And was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and he pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Let's now turn over to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, 
page 547. Psalm 34 has a psalm title, and the psalm title gives the historical narrative, which David is reflecting upon. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him away and he went away. And this is these events from 1 Samuel chapter 21 that we've read. Now, uh, you might be asking, well, we... We're reading about the king Akish, king of Gath, and this here it says Abimelech. So are these different people? Is this a different situation? No, it's the same person. The best way to, to understand this is that Akish was his uh, personal name, uh, whereas Abimelech was his throne name. Uh, Abimelech was a common throne name for the Philistine uh, kings. Uh, just as you, we think king of Egypt would be Pharaoh. There were many pharaohs, but each pharaoh had his own personal name. And so Akish is his personal name. Abimelech is his throne name. So it is one in the same person. Psalm 34. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What is man, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the righteous are toward the right, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the Lord of our God endures and abides forever. 
Congregation loved by our Lord and by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34 is a fitting psalm in many circumstances, and it's also a a fitting psalm to reflect on as we celebrate the Lord's Supper or as you look forward to celebrating the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day. It's significant for the Lord's Supper. It's mentioned in our Lord's Supper forms, this verse, because as you will see the bread and the wine, the elements, and as you will taste, as you will eat the bread and drink the wine, you are called in that action to taste and to see that the Lord is good. And these are empirical words, meaning words that involve the senses. We see with our eyes, we, we taste with our mouth. And the Lord is kind in giving us these sacraments, these visible expressions of his love and of grace, so that we might experience his goodness in the way that we taste and that we see. The Lord wants us to know his goodness and to experience his goodness. And that's the theme that we have here before us in Psalm 34, that the psalmist commands us to taste and see the Lord's goodness. And we'll work through this psalm three points, uh, four points. First of all, experiencing the Lord's goodness. Secondly, expressing the Lord's goodness. And then lastly, Encouraged by the Lord's goodness. Three points. Experiencing the Lord's goodness, expressing the Lord's goodness, and encouraged by the Lord's goodness. Well, first of all, what does it mean to experience the Lord's goodness? And how does this psalm, Psalm 34, give us an illustration of experiencing the Lord's goodness? That's the question. Well, this is why... We read from 1 Samuel chapter 21, and knowing the historical occasion from which David wrote this psalm is important. At this point in David's life, he is in a very dangerous and a very frightening circumstance. David was the anointed king of Israel, but Saul, King Saul, was still the king. David would be king. And Saul is becoming more confused and getting caught in his own spiral of sin. And the throne will be taken away from King Saul and given to David. And although Saul was at at first uh, friendly toward David, he began to be jealous, envious of David, angry. He even threw a spear at David, seeking to kill him. 
David, interestingly, is close, very close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And David is in this perplexing quagmire predicament because Saul hates David so much and wants David away with so badly that there is no safe place in Israel for David to be. He is a man on the run. He's a fugitive. And it's actually so bad that David must leave the land of Israel and enter into a a neighboring territory. And he ends up, and we might question his wisdom in this, but he ends up in Philistine territory. The Philistines were the enemies of the Israelites. Remember, Goliath was a Philistine. But he ends up in Philistine territory. Before he goes there, though, he stops at the home of the priest. And he is extremely hungry and famished. And so he asks the priest, do you have any food? The priest says, well, I don't have any food to give you. There's not like an extra pantry here, but the showbread, which is now expired showbread, is here. Uh, It is bread. It's been consecrated, but David says, give it to me. David is actually not truthful as to why he's at the priest's house. He says that he's on the king's business. Then David also asks the priest, do you have any weapons? I need a weapon. The priest says, I, I don't have much selection, but one weapon I do have, I, I have the sword of Goliath, <laughs> uh, which you can imagine was not a small little jackknife for dagger. This would have been a big sword. David says, I'll take it. And so David leaves, and he goes to Gath. Was he seeking asylum from the king of Gath, Achish? Or did he just simply end up there and was spotted? But what happens is that David is in Gath, and he is recognized. Now, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, understand how, how, how bad a place this is for David. What do you know about Gath? Who else was from Gath? Well, the giant Goliath was from Gath. And you know the story of when the Israelites were fighting the Philistines and the giant Goliath, the pending large, scary man, Invites anyone from Israel to fight him. One-to-one combat. And David, as a shepherd boy, faces Goliath and brings Goliath down. And how that was a moment of triumph for the Israelites and a moment of utter humiliation for the Philistines. Anyway... They spot David as David, the young kid then, back then, who who slammed down and, and killed their mighty warrior, Goliath. And to make matters worse, he's got 
the sword of Goliath with him, which was, would have been a recognizable sword. So David is in enemy territory in the town of Gath, the hometown of the guy he killed with Goliath's sword. David thinks he is a goner. He is going to be killed, and maybe before being killed, tortured, whatever. He is in a very, very frightening, horrific, nightmare situation. And so what does David do? Well, he... As it says in verse 13 of our passage, he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So he's surrounded by these enemies. And what he does is that he goes loopy. (laughs) He acts like a a, a madman. He, He lets saliva, spit come down on his beard. He's going around and scrawling and scribbling on the posts and on walls. He's got this wild eye look on him. And, and, and he's frightening. He's a crazy man. King Akish then says, what? This man is insane. Don't bring him to me. He's a madman. He's a loopy guy. I got enough crazy people hanging around me all day. I don't need another loopy, crazy person in my company. Just leave this guy alone. Let him go. And so they let David go. Now, is this the best uh, method of survival when you're in a difficult predicament? Um, To act like a madman? (laughs) Some commentators uh, wrestle with, was this really right for David to take this plan of action? Um, But understand, beloved, that this is a a story within a story. We need to see that. There's a real hidden story inside this really fascinating story. This is not about a slick move, a a cunning escape uh, by David. It's not that David is about to write a book, you know, uh, quick ways to get out of bad quagmires, <laughs> bad situations. Chapter number one, act like a madman, start acting loopy. No. The, the point here is, is that David knew that he was a poor man. David knew that he could not get out of this situation himself. And so what he did is that this poor man cried to the Lord. He prayed to the Lord. He beseeched. He supplicated to the Lord earnestly. And the Lord heard his cry. And the Lord responded to his prayer. And this was the means, ironic, bizarre, strange, even funny as it is, that David escaped from death. And so the point here is, not David saying, oh, look at me, I'm so clever. Look, look, look how witty I am. No, it's about this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. 
And so David is thanking the Lord. David is magnifying the Lord. David is boasting in the Lord because of what the Lord has done for him, because the Lord has been so good to him. And so David says, verse 4, I sought the Lord and he answered me. This poor man cried, verse 6, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And brothers and sisters, as you look forward to coming to the table next Lord's Day, I invite you to reflect on this verse. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him. This psalm is for poor men, poor women, poor boys, and poor girls. It's for those who find themselves at wit's end, alone, confused, destitute, And the invitation, the command here is to cry on the Lord, knowing that you are a poor man. You know, the gospel isn't for tough guys. It's not for people who think they have it all together. Those who do not consider themselves poor, meaning poor in spirit or The gospel simply doesn't work. If you think you have everything yourself in order to be saved, to make yourself right with God, to to get through life, you're ignorant and naive in your own pride. We are all poor men and women. We are sinful, broken, and frail. And we need a very rich and a very gracious and a good God to give us his strength and his sustenance, and his power, and his provision, so that we can complete the pilgrim path that he has for us. When you go to the hospital, because you're sick and injured, what do you have in common with every other patient in that hospital? What you have in common is that you're all sick. You're all needing the medicine and the care in order to get strong and healthy again. And brothers and sisters, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, what unites us is that we are all poor men and poor women who need the help and the healing of the Lord. We need his grace and his goodness. And that's what the church is, actually. The church is a hospital for sinners. We are all sick and broken. And we need the Lord's mercy and his kindness and his patience toward us. And so David has experienced this goodness from the Lord. And so this is why he is singing. This is why he's rejoicing. Verse 1, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and rejoice. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Now these words, extol, boast, magnify, they're all very similar. And essentially what they all mean is that we, we make ourselves look small, very, very small. 
and we make the Lord look big as he is really big. We actually understand how small we we are and we keep ourselves small in our own perspective of ourselves. And we understand how big and good and great God is. And so we magnify him. We make him look as big as he is by how we live and how we worship and how we live out our lives. And so David is saying, magnify, and he's, he's, this is an invitation, magnify the Lord with me. Now, the two different types of magnifying, and we need to, we need to get the right, right one here. Boys and girls, do you have a, a magnifying glass at home? Or maybe a microscope? Uh, what does a magnifying glass or a microscope do? Well, it takes something really small, like a little bug, an ant, or you might get a, a granular of a sugar or salt, and you put it under the magnifying glass, the microscope, and it takes a very small thing, very, very small thing, and make it look bigger so you can see it. Magnifying glass, takes small print, makes it look bigger. You also have a telescope. And what does a telescope do? Well, you look through a telescope to see things in outer space that are very, very far away. And you use a telescope to get better perception, better clarity on matter, on something that is very, very, very big in itself. You think of the, uh, one of the planets or see the stars or the moon. They're ginormous, gigantic. But they're very, very far away. So a telescope makes a big thing, uh, makes a big thing look big. Whereas a microscope or, or, or a magnifying glass makes a small thing look bigger than it is. And when David says, magnify the Lord with me, He is not saying, I will make a small God look bigger than he is. He means, I will make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. So he's speaking about not a magnifying glass or a microscope magnifying, making a small thing look big. It's a telescope magnifying. I want to make a big God look as big as he really is. And that's what we're called to do here. And as uh, John Piper writes about this, he says that the whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this way. To feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. We need to make, magnify God. Make him look big. Worship him. Honor him. And David is saying, join me in making this big God look even bigger. And so he's saying, I've experienced God's goodness. I have experienced God's goodness. And what he's doing is he, he's inviting all others, to experience God's goodness for themselves. And that's why this language here, taste and see, is important. And why does he use that word, this, these word choices, taste and see? You know, he could have just said, the Lord is good. Think of Psalm 118, which repeats, the Lord, steadfast love endures forever, the Lord Goodness is forever. He could, have, he could have emphasized this by repetition. But here 
he uses these words, taste and see. Well, as we said earlier, these are empirical words, meaning, boys and girls, they involve the senses. Tasting, seeing, your eyes, taste buds. What he's saying is, I know the Lord is good, but I want you to experience his goodness. I want you to, to test him, try him. Taste him. And I promise you, you will not be disappointed. The American theologian, John Edwards, used an illustration, which I think is really helpful. He said that there is a difference between having an opinion that God is gracious and holy and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. How would you explain to somebody who has never had honey what honey tastes like? What's sweet? Well, okay, but it's more than just sweet. There's a texture to it. There's a certain uh, way that honey uh, lingers in your mouth. Uh, honey tastes like honey. And if, if you, you've, you've had to explain to somebody what honey tastes like, the best way to get them to experience the goodness and sweetness of honey would be to, to do what? Give them some honey. Try it out for yourself. Take a spoonful of this. Then you know. Then you've experienced for yourself how good honey is. And that's what the psalmist David is saying. May you taste and see the Lord's goodness for yourself. And as you taste and see, as you experience his goodness, his goodness becomes even more beautiful, even more profound, even more real, even more breathtaking. So taste and see. And so this is what the psalmist has experienced. Now we'll actually go right to our our third point, encouraged by the Lord's goodness. And these two things are connected. We need to be encouraged by the Lord's goodness. Look at verse 15. It says this, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are toward their cry. So the eyes of the Lord are watching the righteous. Now, when the Bible says the righteous, he's not meaning these goody-goody people who never do anything wrong, sparkling, squeaky clean, um, No, uh, the righteous simply refers to the covenant people of God who are desiring to live in communion with God and to do life God's way. Um, The righteous are people who sin, yeah, that's the point. Um, And they they know how to repent. They know how to turn away from their sin and turn back to the Lord. And so it says here, the eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous. And uh, it's like a mother or father watching the very busy toddler uh, who's getting into everything uh, the, the turbo twos what kind of mischievous uh, situation with a little guy little girl get into they, they always got to watch mind the eyes never flicker that's the type of watching this constant looking out that the lord has for his children his ears are open verses 18 19 they cry the lord hears And from their distresses, he delivers them. In verse 18, 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. He is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Are you brokenhearted this morning? Do you sit here with a spirit that is crushed? If we could take a a notepad out and write down everything and anything that is breaking our hearts, that is crushing our spirits, give it to each person and pass it along, I'm sure we'd have quite a volume. We have broken hearts because of our own sin, the consequences of it, the sin of our loved ones, our children, parents, brothers and sisters, bad decisions. Broken hearts crush spirit because of our own frailty, broken bodies, sick bodies. Broken hearts crush spirits because of relational conflict. We are at odds with someone who we love and care about or respect. It is a broken world. And we will have broken hearts. Hearts that ache and break. But this is the promise. That no matter how much your heart is breaking and how, to what degree your spirit is crushed. I feel your spirit is crushed. Can I ever get it put back together again? What does it say? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. And in the Hebrew, that, the language is very strong. It's actually like he's camping. Camping. His campsite is right beside you. He's right there. And that's the promise. And we all will have broken hearts. If we have the capacity to love, as we all do, as image bearers of God, we will have broken hearts. And we should have broken hearts over our own sin. Isaiah prophet, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 53, prophesied the Messiah as the one who would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Understand, when we think about Jesus, we shouldn't be thinking of him as the man of sorrows, as one that was always going around with a long, sad face. No, the joy of the Lord was his strength. There was gladness, there was joy. But understand, remember that Jesus loved perfectly. He was the incarnation of love. He loved his father perfectly. He loved his fellow man perfectly. And he knew the broken story behind every person who he met, the reason for their broken hearts and their crushed spirits and their very broken lives. And Jesus knowing all of this, knew firsthand what sin had done to people's lives and what sin had done to his father's good world. He was a man of sorrows because he saw the degree of broken hearts and crushed spirits. And he himself, as he goes to the cross, would say, my soul is overwhelmed with grief, even to the point of death. But congregation, why does he go to the cross? Why is this his mission? 
It's ordered to fix what's gone wrong. It's ordered to make right what has gone so dreadfully wrong, to restore what is broken. And so although you and I will have broken hearts and crushed spirits, we are not immune from them as Christians. We can have this promise that the Lord protects us and that he is with us in these situations. Look at what it says in verse 20. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him up from them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, this might be an, an odd verse to read. It might be difficult to understand why David would say this. David was a warrior. He saw many individuals with broken bones, soldiers. Christians get broke, broke, broken bones. But a way to read this, understand this, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be persecuted, that they will be delivered up, that some will be put to death for Jesus' sake. They will be hated for the sake of Jesus. He says, you're going out like sheep in the midst of wolves. But then Jesus says, all this will happen, but not a hair of your head will perish. John 19, verse 33. Remember when Jesus was on that cross, he had already died. And as the Roman soldiers were going from cross to cross, they saw that the men beside Jesus were still living. And so what they did was that they broke the legs of these men because in breaking their legs, they would, they would die because they couldn't uh, support themselves. And, and, you know, they, they would suffocate, finally. Like, they would die. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So the soldier took his spear and he thrust his spear into Jesus' side and blood mixed with water flowed out of that womb signifying that Jesus was medically de dead. And as John says in John 19.36, these things came to, came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him will be broken. And the scripture that is fulfilled is Exodus 12.46 and Numbers 9.12 in which stated that the Paschal lamb will not have any broken bones. So the lamb that's presented to be the Passover lamb shall not have any broken bones. This is the lamb without blemish. And this was fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. Brothers and sisters, what happened to Jesus these hours before he dies on the cross? He was ruthlessly beaten, beaten to a pulp. He was scourged, whipped. These Romans, these scourgings, they would whip so hard, it would kill many a man. Many a man didn't survive the whipping. He died because of it. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was tortured. He was hung on the cross. Absolute, horrendous evil and pain inflicted upon him. The, the Romans had engineered the crucifixion on the cross to maximize pain and shame. But even in all of that, what was fulfilled? Not one of his bones were broken. Not one bone was broken. 
Not one little bone in his body was broken to fulfill prophecy. This is what it means, congregation. The forces of evil could do, go so far, but yet the Lord Almighty says this far and no further. Not a hair of your head will perish, my dear martyrs, if, if it's my will that a, a hair will not perish. Not one of your bones will break, my son. See, congregation, what this psalm is saying is that, yes, we live in a broken world of evil and of sin, of sadness, of broken hearts. And we are not immune to having to suffer these things. We are not protected from them in this sense that they don't come to us. But we have this promise. The Lord is with us in them. We're not protected from them, but we're protected in them. The Lord is with us. And because he is the sovereign God who is righteous and good and cares for us, we can know that it's this far and no further. And what good news that is, that we are not just in the grip of the blind forces of fate, that everything is by chance and we don't know what could happen to us in the sense that some power out there, evil, evil, is going to come and really, really hurt us. No. The ultimate protection we have is that the Lord is with us. And he will protect us. He will be with us in the trouble as we go through many toils, dangers, and snares. Nothing will separate us from his love. If God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, the Lord Jesus is our sovereign champion. And so as we worship him, as we live for him, as we go to the table next Lord's Day, may we sing in our hearts and in our lives. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Our Father, we come before you and we thank you of the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which is pointing us to the gospel. And we thank you for this good news. We thank you for Psalm 34, that we can indeed taste and see that you are good. So, Lord, give us this courage and confidence as we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.